Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we work to recover the dignity and mission of vocation. Learn more at metronmanager.com. All right, welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Nowlin, and we're here with Melody Murray, or Mel as she likes to go by. She and her husband, David, are venture partners with Praxis Labs. They also lived extensively overseas and have been involved in a number of kingdom business enterprises. Melody is also collaborating with us to guide the missional entrepreneurship track at the Discover Global Conference here in Northwest Arkansas. So welcome to the program, Mel. Thanks so much, Jonathan. So excited for this conversation today. Oh, that's great. And uh, you did get a chance to, I saw, read my book recently before we chatted. So uh, any response to that? I sure did. I loved it. I tell you, I took a couple flights uh, recently, enjoyed it on the flights and just have really resonated uh, so much of what you're saying. I have been able to sort of humbly be able to experience in other parts of the world. And so it was just a delight. Thank you for writing this. Yeah, absolutely. This is great. And so for many folks in our audience, this will be the first time they've heard of you and David, and many are probably not familiar with Praxis Labs either. Uh, can you share a little bit about your backstory and how you guys ended up doing some really effective work in Asia? Sure, Jonathan, and, and I'll give you the short version, but you know, I, I was entrepreneurial from a young age. Um, I sold vegetables out of my parents' garden. You know, I mowed lawns, started a lawn business with my brother and and just loved to start businesses and love to sell things. So that was my upbringing. I had a farm. Both my parents came from farming communities in Kansas. When we moved into the city, they pretty much treated us like we were still farm hands. And so I learned how to work hard from a young age. But I also began at a very young age to become missional, I would say, in my heart. I was exposed to short-term mission trips. I had a, um, a missionary kid that was one of, you know, one of my best teachers at school, um, had grown up on the mission field. And so he was one of my coaches and teachers and highly influential. And Long story short, when I met David in college, we married mainly um, because we had such common mission and vision together as a couple. We wanted to be missionaries. We wanted to live on the field and do what we could to not only share the love of Jesus and the privilege and and all the opportunities we were born into, into our lives, but we also um, had a bent to start things. And long story short, when we started our marriage, we were in Uganda, Africa, in an orphanage doing orphan care 10 days after we married and thought that would be a pretty big uh, trajectory for our vocation was orphan care. Mm. But at the time, the orphanage that we worked with, it was such a discouraging experience for us on on, on the whole, not because the orphanage wasn't well maintained and the kids weren't cared for or they weren't feeling the love of Jesus, but because it was almost a daily activity to accept new babies in from extremely 
downtrodden, reluctant mothers that probably would have much rather us provided them with work Hmm. and a job. And that was devastating for my husband and I at a young age. So we came back, got got business experience. I worked with Procter & Gamble in marketing. I learned sales with Walmart. We just felt like if we were ever to go back to the field, that we were not just going to take Jesus and word and deed, but that we wanted to do job creation and provide people with work. It felt so central to a human's ability to flourish that to us, that, that part of the equation couldn't go missing. And so after 10 years of finishing degrees and getting business experience, Dave and I launched out into North India. I won't go into how we got there, but we've been doing business in the Tibetan Autonomous Region in North India on the border of Nepal and Myanmar and Northern Thailand for the last 17 years together and um, started multiple businesses and then run a nonprofit that helps young entrepreneurs start businesses that are missional or redemptive in nature. So that's my backstory. Wow. Was that too much, John? No, that's brilliant. <laughs> that is brilliant. That gives us a real good context to kind of understand where you guys are coming from and why you're so passionate about entrepreneurship and this concept of redemptive entrepreneurship. So can you paint a, well, let me back up a little bit as someone with extensive, you know, like missional marketplace experience, like you're saying, you know, can you share how you came to be such an advocate for missional entrepreneurship? I think it's actually that you actually like to use a different term than missional you've shared with me before. So maybe you can mention why that's important. How do you see that? Yeah, when we first met and started working with a group called Praxis out of New York, which I'm now a venture partner of, this this term redemptive entrepreneurship was coined by them. And I've heard a lot of terms over the years, as you have, Jonathan, you know, many people call it business for transformation. Many people call it faith driven entrepreneurship. There's a whole group called BAM, you know, business as mission and all of it I'm a fan of um, on many regards. But yeah, I think two things. The word redemptive for us has really depth of meaning and it seems to cross cultures. Uh, It originally was a term from what I understand that was more agricultural based or economics based. Back in the time, I know Andy Crouch, one of my favorite writers and mentors, goes into a deep dive on that word and and why that word is being used for the type of entrepreneurship that we uh, try to have in our lives. And that is one that fixes things that are broken. Yeah. Um, in the economics turn, term, it goes back to sort of the story of Ruth and Boaz, um, where something is redeemed. It means like it's bought back or it is actually um, given back the way that it should have been and set back. So we use the term redemptive as a way to describe sort of a creative restoration uh, through sacrifice, through our business and our venture. And it really starts with us as leaders, right? So entrepreneurship right. to me is critical that there are some in the world that God has given the ability to activate or start things and that we, we can just with true intention, start things that have a trajectory to create restoration in people's life, to redeem them out of broken situations, to redeem them out of a situation where their relationship with their creator has been broken, uh, where their ability to be image bearers of Christ has been broken And we do that in a number of ways, through our operations, through our strategy, through our vision. And so we we love to use that term, redemptive entrepreneurship. That's excellent. That's such a clear portrayal of that concept. And I really do like how it um, complements this concept of missional that people are more familiar with, but it's such a broader, deeper 
uh, application of that. So can you paint a picture for our audience of what it really means to be redemptive in your work as an entrepreneur? That might seem a little bit ethereal to people that are kind of hearing that term and they're not familiar with it. Sure. You know, what would be a few key indicators even of an entrepreneur or an endeavor that's functioning redemptively? So some of the baseline principles that we talk about are to look at what redemptive means in comparison to other types of businesses. So we start sort of with a, the starting point would be uh, what we don't want, which is an exploitative business. You know, exploitative businesses typically use people or leverage culture for their own gain. And so we don't want to be exploitative in anything we do as, as believers and followers of Jesus. Sort of that next level of business that we see in the world is an ethical business where you know, people are treated well, or they're kindly treated, and 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 often culture can be um, advanced positively through ethical businesses. But we talk about a redemptive entrepreneur as one who's really pushing the edge of what business is capable of when we have kingdom mindset, where we bless people with our business and we renew the culture back to the place in which it was originally established by our king and our creator. And so some of those baseline principles that we commit to as a redemptive entrepreneur is really growing in our leadership around time, money, power, uh, community. And we have baseline practices that we commit to as a growing body of redemptive entrepreneurs to hold each other accountable around those things. And man, it's so life-giving, Jonathan, to be on journey around learning what it means to be a redemptive entrepreneur, but also to see a growing community of others willing to hold me accountable. Uh, Because if it doesn't start with a leader, it's real tough to have a redemptive business without a redemptive leader, right? So it starts about renewing from within and being formed (laughs) within, right? (laughs) And learning how to be the best image bearer of Christ that I can possibly be and not just the way I raise my kids or my marriage, but in the way that I start and operate my venture. And so that's what we talk about quite a bit. And we have a lot of different ways to measure that impact and talk about that influence and, and keep us on, on track with that. But I hope that gives a little better explanation of what we Yeah, absolutely. And that really resonates, you know, with the heart of a lot of what I've been writing and teaching on, you know, transformation Mm -hmm. starts with the inner man, the interior and works its way out into society. And there has to be the internal to external. Uh, That's really how the kingdom of God functions is designed to work. It's not an, I say in my book, it's not an imposition. The kingdom of God's not an imposition. It's something that emerges out of you and blesses. Yes, that's right. I love this quote in your book early on, page 11, where you you talk about the dark places of this world and how they're in desperate need of the sons and daughters of God to reflect the light of heaven into the worst corners of yeah. creation. And we talk a lot about that in our work, that truly all of us as followers of Jesus are, are called to two, two of the same things, in my opinion, which is number one, to be image bearers or reflecting our creator God into the world. And number two, to go to the places where that image has been broken and to do everything we can to restore or redeem it back. And I think each one of us is called to that. Your book states this over and over again, that if we can understand that theology, that our role here on, um, on the earth is is not just to believe something to be true and then get into heaven, 
but to be aggressively with all the fervor that we can be restoring this place back to to the way he originally wanted it to be and that's our job and that's our calling and that's our work and it's redemptive it's exciting it's thrilling work right i yeah i've never found more thrilling work absolutely so i and like you said i think it does it has to begin inside um, not just with what we know or what we believe but what we've allowed to form us and um, that's a big part of the journey still feeling like i'm learning so much about that every day and what you're describing really resonates with me uh, because it really is like this like a summation of the idea of missionized theology of work that i advocate for and really what the discover global conference is all about is this there's a lot of concepts of theology of work out there which are great but that uh, aggressive element of what you're describing in there, mm-hmm. that's the missionized, that you're on mission yeah. in your Metron, in your yeah. workplace, and you're actually laying hold of that and fixing what's mm-hmm. broken. You're seeing what's broken, you're learning, that's your missiology in your Metron, is you're seeing what needs to align with heaven and you're bringing that into order and into the presence yes. of God. And so that is why yeah. work gets exciting. That's why missionized theology of work is so fulfilling and purposeful. Uh, I just, yeah. And like you said in your book, it's not just for a few of us, That's you know, right. and it's definitely not for the small percentage of us that for whatever reason have been called or chosen to be paid, you know, in a ministry yeah. position. It's every single person. I don't care what role you play. I have met the most redemptive accountants I think I could ever, right. ever have met. The yeah. most missional, you know, housekeepers that I've ever met in my life. There's yeah. all sorts of us needed on this mission. And I think when we take our place, um, our rightful place as sons and daughters of the most high king that he has called into his work, man, there's nothing that we can't do together. Yeah, and there's no more thrilling of a life to live. And so that excites me every day. I've learned a lot lately about this balance between humility and ambition. And I've been yeah. talking to my my kids a lot about this as they've transitioned from 10 years in Asia back to the States. We've just moved back to my hometown of Kansas City after being away for 25 years. And it's been really interesting to see from their perspective, some of the cultural differences. And one of the conversations we've been having lately is is the cultural difference in ambition that that Americans are often quite ambition ambitious in comparison to a lot of the world and yeah. i would i would love to say that um we have a healthy balance of humility and ambition in the us <laughs> and i don't know if i can say that yet but i think as believers uh, there is a balance there between a humility um, as believers in the Lord and a, a trust in him that he's in control, but also he, he loves ambition, healthy yeah. ambition, you know, is spoken of often in, in his word yeah. uh, that we're go-getters, you know, we're trailblazers, we're pioneers. We're going to go claim stake on those pieces of his, or the corners of his world that are broken and yeah. dark and um, that takes action, right? That does. So speaking of taking action, you know, there's a lot of young people, maybe young professionals, mid-career professionals that really feel like they're wired as an entrepreneur. They have that kind of inclination, that gifting, maybe the history, maybe they were the one like you and I starting uh, businesses in school, you know, I mean, I did the lawn mowing, you know, I had all that history as well. I came from a bit of an agricultural agrarian background where I grew up. So I understand that, but maybe someone is just in general wired entrepreneurially and, you know, they're wondering, you know, 
what could I bring to the equation in the kingdom? Why does entrepreneurship matter? Why does it matter for me to even go with that? Is it worth it? You know? Mm, I love it. I'm going to quote a couple things then from a recent conference. I, I was involved with, with Praxis, but it, it talks a lot about tomorrow's culture will be built by today's entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, if you look at the landscape of our world right now, we see greater access to capital, tech, talent, and networks really greater than any at any time in history, if you think about it. And the movie stars of our day right now are entrepreneurs. That's right. So you think about the ability to transform culture as an entrepreneur. It's it's sobering, it's humbling to think about. I think that not all that cultural power has led to human flourishing, right? We are very much aware at the damage that sure. entrepreneurship can also do. Yeah, in the it's world. all about so what the spirit time. is that informs it. Where where are you drawing from? Heaven or hell that's kind right. of thing. Heaven or hell, that's right. You mentioned that in your book. And so the world truly needs a different kind of builder, a different kind of entrepreneur. And we can let the world keep filling those slots. That's fine. But we're going to see more corruption and darkness and brokenness. And so those of us that, that have the love of Jesus in our hearts and the king, keys to his kingdom that happen to have some entrepreneurial bent, we better step up. It's time. And, and we need to start taking back. And we, I truly believe that entrepreneurs that are spiritually serious yeah. and culturally astute and in community with other people will be one of the most winsome uh, witnesses in our day and age and, and one of the most winsome cultural builders in our day and age. Yeah. Wow. I agree. So how did you guys, you know, in the, in the line of entrepreneurship and stuff, how did you guys land with Praxis Labs? I mean, what's the connection there? And, um, you know, how'd you end up collaborating kind of why, I guess it's the why, if people are wondering why did you get involved with Praxis and what is that? So Dave and I had been off in, in the boonies of India, North India, Myanmar, Thailand for years and years. And I kept getting a call from a, a friend of mine, Steve Graves, who I respect heavily. He's one of my uh, coaches, uh, an incredible executive coach. And he kept telling me about Praxis. He was sitting on the board and it's an accelerator for redemptive entrepreneurs. I'd never heard anything like this. And I didn't have the time for this. You know, Jonathan, I'm an entrepreneur. We don't <laughs> have busy, time right? for these things. Yeah. <laughs> I put it off for years. They kept asking me to apply and I put it off and I put it off. And, you know, Jonathan, we have one really crazy part of our story where we were deported from India unexpectedly. Okay. And I won't get into that. We, we've since gone through a court case and been able to get on the other side of that and have access to India again. I won't get okay. into it. But when we got deported, I realized suddenly I was going to be in the States for who knows how long. So I signed up for that accelerator, decided it was time. (laughs) And so this was six years ago and I signed up. I I didn't actually know what an accelerator was, to be honest. And that that buzzword wasn't as big of a deal then as it is now. Uh, Signed up. And I remember my first flight into New York to start this accelerator with a cohort of other redemptive entrepreneurs, whatever that meant. I didn't know. Um. I have never felt so uh, just with my people, like I'd found my people. Mm. I was so encouraged day one that number one, there was an organization that had people of incredible depth of character that seemed to understand a lot of what you've written in here um, fairly well and that were living it out 
on mission together in the heart of New York City in Hell's Kitchen. They'd all moved their families there. They were worshiping every morning together. They were running their businesses together in support of each other. And they were letting 12 redemptive entrepreneurs sort of journey with them uh, for nine months every year. And so we inched in. I had such a phenomenal experience through that accelerator that I just kept pressing in. So I have now gotten to be a part of their venture lab. I've been a part of mentoring for their accelerator. And now I'm in um, taking on more and more of a role around how to help other people start accelerators for redemptive entrepreneurship. So that's my journey with Praxis. I would encourage anyone to learn more about Praxis, uh, praxislabs.org. And just in my opinion, I, I can say this as a little bit of an outsider. It feels like a movement of our day and age right. of of redemptive entrepreneurship in the world. And I know those running Praxis wouldn't begin to say stuff like that. They're very humble, but there's hundreds and and if not thousands now being affected um, by the work that's being done there. Wow, that's exciting. You know, I heard one uh, example of a a way that, uh, well, Western Christians, you could say, were helping even in a missional sense as entrepreneurs that was out of the box for me. And I don't know if you've heard of this with Praxis Labs, but um, that there's, you know, when people think of entrepreneurship, they often think of, you know, me, myself and I doing something. But actually there was this idea of like, no, actually going and using your entrepreneurial lifting skills, so to speak, to help uh, entrepreneurs who are believers in even other countries kind of get on their feet or get going and uh, collaborating with them, almost like a, a short, uh, missions experience that would be really out of the box for what most people in America, at least would think of as missions. But I, I thought that was a great take on, on how an entrepreneur can actually really bring something valuable to the table and help other Christian entrepreneurs in really restricted areas, even be able to stand up what they're doing. Have you heard of these kind of things? Absolutely. And have had the joy of, of, you know, being a part of running a nonprofit called Joy Corps over the past 15 years. And it's really what Joy Corps does is mentor entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia and South India to be able to have the access to mentors and resources, impact investment, surrounding them really with an ecosystem. And so entrepreneurs who are here in the U.S. that have had real life business experience or even individuals that just have technical experience right. in their work, whether that's, again, an accountant or a marketing uh, director. We love to plug people in like that with our entrepreneurs on the other side of the world to help mentor and just resource uh, these young individuals that have such significant untapped potential, but they're right. in many ways not plugged into the grid that we have here, yeah, right? They. Yeah. They don't have that thriving ecosystem of individuals around them that you and I probably have had most of our lives. Right. And so, yeah, I would say for anyone that wants to get involved in something like that, um, joycore.org, it's like Peace Corps, but joycore.org or Praxis Labs are both great opportunities to plug in and use the experiences you have um, for good out into the world. Oh, that's excellent. And I know there are a lot of people, especially young professionals who, you know, they might envision themselves diving into some kind of entrepreneurial work in the future, maybe in the US, maybe overseas, maybe in some really dark areas of the world. Uh, you know, what would you, at, an, at like a formative kind of inception point time in their life, what would you share as like a, a piece of advice at this kind of formative stage? I was just speaking with some individuals yesterday who 
husband and wife, very much like Dave and I in our 20s, want to be on the field, but but want to make sure they launch well. And I'll tell you, Jonathan, those years in our 20s, when we came back from Africa, sort of feeling ill-equipped and a bit spinning just in terms of what, what will this mean to, to go try to create jobs and redemptive work for people if we if we haven't had the experiences here in the U.S., who are we to consider having those experiences on the other side of the world? So I always say just like getting on a plane and flying over the ocean is not going to change you. So the person you right. are here in, in the culture that you grew up in is the person that you're going to be over there. So start practicing those things here. Are you going into the places that are broken in your own neighborhoods, in your own cities? Are you finding ways to restore and redeem those areas first? Because if you can't do that here, the chances of you doing that there are pretty slim. My 20s and learning about redemptive entrepreneurship in my 20s, even by taking jobs with Procter & Gamble and Walmart and learning business in in a context where I could speak the language and I understood the culture, that was so formative. I... Jonathan, I would have fallen flat on my face in my 20s had I tried to do what I did um, in my mid-30s. And not to say somebody can't do it. I'm sure there's superstars out there that can go change the world at that age. But I I needed to grow up and our marriage needed to be strengthened. I, I learned how to be a mom for the first few years. And even that changes you and grows you yeah. so much, right? So grow up and learn as you grow up and take all those experiences. You're going to be building networks. You're going to be learning how to build the right support around you. You're going to be gaining those life experiences. And those are so crucial. So I think those yeah. are the first things I would say. Learn to do it in your neighborhood first and then go. Uh, that is go. great advice. You know, a lot of people think that those experiences or those work phases or even the, you know, the the 20s kind of thing of your life are kind of wasted or in the way of, you know, you know, a lot of times, oh, what I want to do, I have this vision for. But really, kind of what I hear you advocating for is really take that as an opportunity pr- to prepare, to be equipped, to value all Absolutely. of that as like equipping and tool belts, getting those tool belts on. And then you're actually able to bring something valuable to the table, so to speak, in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're learning so much and it will apply. It will apply to the work that you do. Every experience in your business or or role that you take in someone else's business, that can build and build and build. And I also think as you're going about, you know this, Jonathan, but you're going about those roles, you're not just learning about business, you're learning about yourself. But even maybe, and more importantly, you're learning how to work with others. You're forming a team. And I still have bosses from that season of my life that are some of my biggest mentors. I still have coworkers from that season of my life that have journeyed with me all these years. And so everything that you're doing in those formative years, teens and 20s and 30s, it will be used. If you're willing to say yes, it will be used down the road. Just keep building, keep building on that. And, you know, Dave and I always laugh that for our 20s, when we were back here in the States, just doing work, just working in our roles every night, we'd be on the back porch with our beers asking the Lord, when are you going to send us, God? We're ready. We're ready. Aren't we ready? We're just trying to convince him, like, come on. And um, it's okay to be really ready in your spirit, but to be waiting on the Lord and being formed in that process. Oh, that's excellent. I'm sure we'll get to talk more about all this at the conference too, coming up. Yes. So, uh, 
you know, speaking of the conference, you know, we're really excited about the upcoming Discover Global Conference. It's really coming together well here in Northwest Arkansas. You know, we'll be hearing testimonies, concepts from a lot of thought leaders, practitioners, uh, folks like yourself that have workplace professional history. And uh, you'll be uh, heading up the redemptive entrepreneurship track, which is going to be really uh, attractive to a lot of folks in our area, I think, who are wired this way. Uh, I think it'll bring, you'll bring a crucial perspective to this event. And all our contributors will be championing an on-mission lifestyle, uh, embracing what I like to call missionized theology of work. And um, can you share from your perspective why it'd be valuable for a Christian in the workplace to attend this conference? Absolutely. And if People haven't read your book. Number one, read your book and know that even just attending and spending time going through some of that content is going to be well worth your while. Yeah. But then, you know, in terms of redemptive entrepreneurship and the the track we'll be discussing, I would hope that anyone coming to this conference, no matter what position they have, will find inspiration for what it means to be more redemptive in our day-to-day lives in the work that we do. And there are many individuals sort of around the world being sparked toward these concepts and that are diving deep into this content. And it is changing. It's changing my life. I'm, I'm a one, you know, advocate. There's thousands now where we put these things, these concepts into practice on a daily basis, and we are being formed and we're seeing it work in the world in ways that we haven't seen before. Jonathan, you and I go way back in terms of BAM or transformative business. And these ideas have been around for a while, but I haven't seen this type of traction before and in my work. And so having a baseline practice these principles, understanding what it means to be redemptive in our work. I really look forward during the conference to dive deeper into those things and conversation with anyone who's interested. And I know it will be beneficial as we journey through that content together. The conference will be held here in Fayetteville, Arkansas on December 4th. It's a Saturday and registration and more information will be available on our website at metronmanager.com and at the conference website, discoverglobal.us. And Mel, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. This has been really good. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for the uh, opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager podcast presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com.